were clues of impending trouble not recognized at the time. Ada and other hijackers recorded a rap song at a Sarasota recording studio. We could die any day, that's why we pray for such purposes. Five times a day, heads in concrete surfaces. It's murderous. Have assassins, you heard of us. Get back to Holy Land, that's lost to all of us. Calling themselves the Arab Assassins. I'm heartless, an animal next on God's list. Glocks and clips that blend with the fog and the mist. Scars on my fist, reputation with. Hindsight is almost always 2020. Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Murray, here with you again. And believe it or not, on today's episode of Media Roots Radio, you're going to get a third dose, a booster shot of 9-11. Yes, I know it is the, well, it's almost the end of the month now. I'm recording this not on the same day that I'm going to release it, but let's just say getting awfully close to October. 9-11 9-11 has mostly faded from people's minds now. The memorial events, all the press hype has largely died down. It's a little surprising, actually, the 20th anniversary, that this is all the hype we got. We didn't even really get any dramatizations of 9-11. And I've maybe partly because they've already churned as many of those as they possibly fucking can out. I mean, in terms of like the official variations of the official story. But I did promise something to you guys on the last episode. Of course, our last 9-11 episode was kind of a a really long two-parter where Abby and I had Gumby on, and we were talking about it, uh, 9-11, and then Abby had to go. Gumby and I finished a discussion on our own for about, I don't know, two hours or so. It wasn't really that much of a planned-out discussion. We kind of, it was just kind of free-form all over the place, you know, I thought we covered a lot of different bases. Some people had some criticisms about maybe some of the cynicism that I put on display in that discussion. And part of that cynicism comes from the fact that I've I get cynical about everything or I get I have a lot of critiques about things that I have witnessed for a long time, regardless of what they are. That's just my nature. When it comes to the nine eleven truth movement, I had been a witness to it. I had been sort of a part of it, not ever really like an on the ground activist, more like an armchair, you know, sitting at home, kind of emailing people kind of guy. You know, I've, I, I see a lot of flaws in it. I see a lot of what the 9-11 truth movement got wrong, how it wasted a lot of people's time and how ultimately I do think we need a new approach. Now we just need a new approach Not saying that some of the old approaches aren't good or that there aren't people doing new approaches now that are good, because there are, but I think we need to really reflect on and be honest about all the bad things that came out of the 9-11 truth movement, how easily the sort of the establishment of mainstream media was able to knock it down, what areas of focus truthers chose to focus on so that 
all the debunking could be, for example, all about the buildings or all about how the Pentagon really was hit by a plane. These are things that I think we we just really need to reflect on. And I, I've, for myself, I've gone completely back into the rabbit hole of actually researching these things firsthand. And what I mean firsthand is I am less interested at this point in 9-11 truther theories or people who develop their own theories, even if they have really convincing evidence for that theory. I believe that I personally know enough about 9-11 now, and I have a lot of my own questions that I think are legitimate, and I've discussed with a lot of other researchers that I feel that I am able to now go back to original sources, news stories, and develop 9-11 theories of my own or find leads just based on that, how much information I already have taken in over the years. So part of what I'm going to do today, or at least on these on these next two episodes, and even we're even going to do a, an episode about the 20th anniversary of the anthrax attacks, which we're going to put out in early October. But what I'm going to try to do for you today is give you a lot of raw facts, interesting coincidences, without necessarily going off on tangents about my own theories about it, but showing you a lot of raw information and also providing you with a tool with all this raw information that I've compiled myself in order for you to do your own research based off of it. Now, just at the front of this, I will put a disclaimer on, and this is not, and regardless of what you think, I really don't care if you believe me or not, but this is not to entice people to subscribe to our Patreon. Um, obviously, you know, we love it if you want to subscribe and support us in that way. But we also love that, you know, if you just listen and you are a supporter of our podcast in that way and help get the word and information out. But in this specific instance, the podcast you're listening to now will be released publicly. It's not going to be for Patreon only subscribers. But the resource that I'm going to give you that will be discussed multiple times in this podcast will only be available to our Patreon subscribers because of some things in it that I'm a little hesitant to make completely public to everybody right now because it contains home addresses of various individuals, people um, that you may even consider 9-11 suspects, uh, some victims of various aspects and peripheral events to 9-11, things like that that I am hesitant to put publicly online. However, for right now, as, I'm, as this resource is still an in-progress sort of document that's being built as we speak by me, a couple other people helping me, um, I will provide this resource. And basically, I'll just say what it is. It's an interactive map um, that is isolated specifically to Florida because I, I felt my interest in 9-11 has been mostly focused on Florida uh, right now, specifically because it was the site of the first anthrax murder. Um, so that has drawn me into, and Daniel Hopsicker's research is amazing. Now I'll just say also really quickly that I believe there is actually some utility in going back into some of the old truther research projects and combining it together and then seeing if anything comes out of that. Some of these resources people may disagree with in terms of its credibility or 
they feel it's a limited hangout or whatever. That doesn't matter to me because as long as the facts are verifiable, it's not the narrative that comes out of those people's work that's necessarily interesting to me. It's the facts that they have put together. Now, just for example, I'll explain to you what I mean. So Daniel Hopsicker is definitely one person um, that I think, you know, kind of got me interested in this in the first place. He did an amazing book and uh, a lot of research on the lives the hijackers led in Florida previous to the 9-11 attacks, their strange behaviors, etc. Now, after I did the Israeli art student episode of Media Roots Radio, and I didn't make that episode a, a 9-11-centric episode because I was just more interested in the overall phenomenon of it. Uh, but this episode, and because it's going to be two parts, it'll continue, is going to be about 9-11. And since there were a lot of Israeli art students active in Florida, I felt it would be a good idea to go back to Christopher Ketchum's research, uh, mostly from one salon piece he wrote on the Israeli art student phenomenon. Now, other people have written about the Israeli art student phenomenon as well. Now, it's sort of been overshadowed more recently by this concept of the so-called dancing Israelis, these four Israeli men who were filming the World Trade Center collapsing and cheering, and their behavior was so suspicious that they got the police called on them on the day of 9-11, and they were questioned and later let go. Christopher Ketchum's overall piece expands the scope of that to such a large degree, it honestly makes the four Israeli suspects or those guys seem rather small in comparison to this larger picture. Now, there is some implication that those four Israeli men had some foreknowledge of the attacks that it does make that particularly noteworthy. Um, however, when you look at the overall picture of the so-called Israeli art student operation, it is very, very large. And in addition to that, there does seem to be a lot of activity in Florida that has nothing to do with that, those men near the man. Christopher Ketchum's research was the first I would say deep dive on the subject that really points out the geography of how strange it really gets. Now, Graham McQueen, uh, a researcher who really got me um, more interested in researching the 2001 anthrax attacks. Uh, he's also done some research on 9-11, um, but I'd say his most important work is on anthrax. And his book, The 2001 Anthrax Descript, deception really, really blows open the whole framing, I think, of the event. Now, Graham McQueen also focuses part of his book on Florida. So here we have three 9-11 adjacent researchers. Some of them could be considered maybe truth three. Some of them not at all. Christopher Ketchum, not at all. I think even Daniel Hopsicker rejects the label now. But it's interesting because Daniel Hopsicker does not talk about any of the Israeli art student activity in Florida. So this is what I'm explaining is the utility in combining together just alone Daniel Hopsicker's research with Christopher Ketchum's research. You start finding some interesting things that line up. Now, when you combine that with Graham McQueen's research, you also start finding some interesting things that line up because Graham McQueen focuses on the anthrax attacks in Florida and find some interesting connections between the hijackers and anthrax, which is quite strange. 
Webster Tarpley's Synthetic Terror, I thought, has a really intriguing and compelling narrative uh, that is sort of laid out in Florida in terms of Bush's activities in Florida before and after 9-11. So when you sort of combine together Webster Tarpley's Synthetic Terror, Florida, Grandma Queen's Florida stuff, Christopher Ketchum's Florida stuff, and Daniel Hopsicker's research, which is mostly all about Florida. And then you also combine that with some of my own stuff. Um, when I say my own stuff, I mean like Rudy Giuliani's activities cleaning up anthrax in Florida in the AMI building. I believe you can maybe find some very, very compelling things this way. So this is going to be my template for trying to encourage people to do more research in this area. And I know this might even seem counterintuitive because I'm trying to widen the frame of 9-11 or unnarrow the framing that a lot of people might be trapped in. But at the same time, I'm also encouraging people to possibly look at 9-11, the anthrax attacks, the Israeli art students in Florida, and Bush's activities before and after 9-11 is somehow all connected together in some way. Now, I'm not saying that that there was a conspiracy that was a coordination between all four of these things happening at once. But there's something to the geography of them, the timing of them, that cannot be ignored and written off as complete coincidence. And when you get into the real, when you get into the real granularity of it, in terms of how geographically close together some of these things were or timing-wise some of these things were, it just gets really, really creepy. And I think there might be some new leads that could basically be born out of this, looking at it from this angle. And because 9-11 is so big, I'm starting specifically with Florida because that seems to be where the most activity in terms of the 9-11 like planning, at least with the hijackers, took place. Now, I'm also going to be just referring to them as the hijackers, even though I am skeptical of the belief that the FBI or the 9-11 investigations really identified the proper people who were the real hijackers or the pilots who flew the planes. But I'm still going to be referring to them as hijackers just for the sake of convenience. So what I did was I put together an interactive map where I've inserted 300 different addresses of different locations of activities of the Israeli art students, the 9-11 hijackers, the anthrax attacks, Bush's activities in Florida. And I put all these on a map together for our listeners to look at. And for right now, it's only for our subscribers because there is some information in there that I am hesitant. There's things like personal home addresses and things that were never made public in news stories that are important to see, to see how close in proximity they are to some of these other things, just to see how freaking bizarre it is. But I did promise listeners in the last episode with Gumby that I would be answering questions relating to 9-11. We didn't get a chance to get to those on the episode, unfortunately. We just didn't. But I thought some of the questions were pretty good, and I wanted to answer them. 
So I'm just going to go through some of the questions I got from you guys on Twitter. And I'll try to answer them for you as best as I can at the beginning of this podcast. And, and, and this beginning part of the podcast is going to be a little all over the place before I get into the real meat of what this podcast is going to be about, which is going to be taking you as a listener through this interactive map and also taking you down potentially new avenues of investigation for 9-11 or areas which I think need more focus, that haven't got enough focus. Big Basra asks, have you read The Looming Tower? And if so, what did you think of it? Big Basra, I have not read The Looming Tower in its entirety. I am very familiar with it. I have seen part of the miniseries about it. And I widely see it as the neoliberal official story of 9-11. You're going to find countless neo-libs who will admit to you Oh yeah, of course the 9-11 commission was was funky. Of course Bush lied. But I but the looming tower seems totally true to me. Um I think that the looming tower is a perfect neoliberal fairy tale for blowback and incompetence and this idea that the agencies didn't share things with each other. There's almost nothing in that narrative that seems malicious or deep state-ish, if you know what I mean. It all paints this very, I don't know, mundane picture of the bureaucratic function. So I didn't read the whole thing, but what I think of it is that I think it's a very ingenious piece of propaganda that has basically pulled the wool over people's eyes for a very long time. And I don't even know if the author of it was an intentional propagandist or if he was just you know, led around by the nose. I would say probably the latter. That's how a lot of these things take place, like access-based, like we're going to feed you little dribs and drabs of really hot information and give you sort of a limited hangout thing to make it seem like how the CIA dropped the ball. Uh, you know, but in reality, it's not going to be anything that's going to implicate anybody. It's basically just going to implicate the system. House Trotter on Twitter says, what do you make of the threads that seem to connect the alleged hijackers to the anthrax attacks? Obviously, it didn't pan out, but do you think there was an attempt to frame them? I'll answer your last question first. Do I think there was an attempt to frame them? No, I don't. And by that, I mean that I don't think external forces, like I don't think any of these witnesses who describe their behaviors were like planted and were there to frame the hijackers. I think the hijackers behaved exactly like they were described in terms of acting really suspicious, you know, trying to steal a crop duster, for example. I believe the witnesses who said that. So I would say, I think that they tried to frame themselves, if that makes sense. If that doesn't make sense, let me explain a little more. I think that the hijackers may have actually been deliberately planting a trail of potential evidence that in retrospect you could look back on and say that they might have had something to do with the anthrax attacks. Now another possibility when you say, do you think there was an attempt to frame them? It's possible that someone else was trying to set them up, that someone else was making them believe that they were seriously going to do an anthrax attack that wasn't actually going to be pulled off. 
but it's possible that someone was instructing them to do something in that regard. But in terms of what do I make of the threads that seem to connect the alleged hijackers to the anthrax attacks? I think they are 100% legitimate, and this interactive map um, that I put together uh, has reinforced that idea tenfold in my mind. Uh, basically, some of the things that I have found over the last few days um, have absolutely convinced me that there is some kind of connection in terms of whoever did 9-11 probably also did anthrax. But that doesn't mean I'm saying the hijackers did anthrax. What is a truth or theory that accepts that the buildings were hit by the three planes and that the listed hijackers were accurate? It doesn't require, it doesn't require one to accept any conspiracies about the collapse. Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. I'm actually barely going to ta be talking about the collapses on these two episodes. So your question... I'm not sure how to answer it. I would say any variation of the theory that the Bush administration let it happen on purpose. That's a, that's a version of the theory that accepts all those things at face value that you said, but still believes that it was on some level an inside job. Thomas Arthur Valium asks, what does the increasing mainstreaming of the Saudis did it narrative mean for trutherism? What are its implications for the changing shape of U.S. imperialism? That's a really good question. I would say I have a very, very negative view on this, actually. There are plenty of Reagan-era neocons, like Michael Ledeen, and some of the more hawkish, not the lib neocons, but some of just the more far-right, spook, deep state you know, neocons from the Reagan era, They've been talking about knocking down Saudi Arabia's regime forever. Michael Ledeen actually mentioned it, mentions it again right after 9-11. He's a PNAC neocon. So this idea that Saudi Arabia are our undying, unconditional allies and that we covered up the 9-11 attacks because they're our allies and all that shit, um, I think is a complete fiction. I see it more as if Saudi Arabian intelligence was involved and if, you know, the 14 out of the 19 hijackers being Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabian is significant, meaning that they, it is some kind of Saudi operation. I, I don't think that means anything other than some other entity like someone in the United States possibly worked with Saudi proxies to pull off some kind of operation. So I guess I'm a little surprised that more people haven't been trying to see it that way or exploring it from that way. And I'm also surprised that more that I'm also surprised that a lot of anti-imperialists seem to really lean into the discussion about Saudi Arabia being like this totalitarian nightmare, you know, Islamic hellscape when, you know, that's the same argument that you could make about Afghanistan or whatever. So like it does get a little bit too uncomfortably close to me to like actual neocon rhetoric. Cause it's similar to China. It's like, yeah, China is also in some ways like an was, or had some, you know, economic 
you know, symbiosis with the United States uh, is considered an ally, but that doesn't mean that the United States still doesn't want to knock it off or there aren't forces here trying to knock it off, just like Saudi Arabia. So I think that gets, that nuance gets lost sometimes that, you know, just because Saudi Arabia may be our ally and does a lot of horrible things too, doesn't mean that the U.S. isn't planning on doing regime change there eventually. So I could easily see a future administration being like, we need to punish Saudi Arabia for 9-11. If it gets to that point. And yes, the mainstreaming of the Saudis did it narrative to me tells me that that's, there is a utility in boosting that point of view. And I think the utility serves sort of what I just said, is it could be a track to eventually do regime change in Saudi Arabia if we wanted to. You know, it's similar to Saddam. We worked with Saddam. We were his ally. We were selling weapons to him. Rumsfeld's there shaking hands with him. And all of a sudden, you know, he becomes the villain. Gaddafi, similar thing. This is sort of what the U.S. does. Can you discuss all the narratives around evidence which is in favor of or against controlled demolition? You've asked me to respond to this against perspective. I guess I'll just, I mean, honestly, here, here's what I'll say to that. I think that, I used to think that World Trade Center 7 was a very, very powerful image and that it was seemingly so memory hold and, I don't know, brushed under the rug as even happening that I thought it used to be a very powerful way to get people to sort of rapidly shift their perspective on 9-11 and realize that there's a lot of weird stuff going on that they don't understand. I was never too keen on the idea of being like, you know, like, say this is controlled demolition. Say this is being imploded. You know, like demanding that people... I was always of the perspective that it looked exactly like a traditional controlled demolition, I guess. I was never a believer of this idea that they were destroying paperwork in World Trade Center Building 7 because you, it seems like a bad way to destroy paperwork to just let it blow out all the windows because a lot of paperwork flying around New York that day. But I guess overall, after 20 years of looking at this stuff, I am now of the perspective that Tower 1 and 2, the way those collapsed, it is absolutely cartoonish looking if you're looking at them as just a natural collapse from fire. World Trade Center 7 almost, in some ways, may, would make more sense to me. I It's weird. I'm not saying that I do think it collapsed from fire. I still think World Trade Center 7 is very, very strange. I mean, I think anybody looking at that would agree that it's it seems strange that a building that had that little fire and it could collapse like that so perfectly. That is strange. I don't think it's necessary to get into the speed of the collapse and all this. I just don't. To me, that does, does seem kind of like an infinite rabbit hole thing hamster wheel effect where nobody's really going to get anywhere with that however i will say that the tower one and two if i were to just totally speculate i would say that that looks nothing like a collapse that looks nothing like a traditional controlled demolition that looks like a controlled explosion almost like movie pyrotechnics but done like accidentally too powerfully. Lukewarm says, what do you guys think of Sybil Edmonds? She seemed to be an important whistleblower in the 2000s, but in the last few years seems to have gone off the deep end into full-on right-wing conspiracy woo. I mean, 
I'll, I won't comment on her um, specifically. What I will say is that I would say the majority of people from the 9-11 truth era, even including some of like the so-called whistleblowers, have gone really, really sort of cuckoo and off the deep end and also very right wing in the Trump era. I've seen it with a lot of people. In fact, I've actually seen 9-11 truthers. This is crazy. I've seen 9-11 truthers who, who know all the PNAC neocons, you know, who know who Bernard Carrick is, who know who Rudy Giuliani is. They know their weird, suspicious connections to 9-11, who've gotten so enmeshed in sort of like the right-wing conspiracy world since the Trump era that they actually now like will post things from Bernard Carrick and other right-wing neocons that are like in PNAC who are like Trumper neocons. So that's how much um, a lot of people have gone nuts. If you can, if you see 9-11 truthers posting stuff from PNAC adjacent neocons, I mean, that just really goes to show how many of them have lost their mind. And I've seen it happen to a lot of people. Do you think they put explosives in the building? I work on skyscrapers. They aren't that wide, and I grew up at airports. Jetliners are huge. It just seems like you can knock one down with a plane standing next to both. Obviously, there was an interagency conspiracy. I just think overly fantastic claims are meant to inflate perceived abilities to mythical proportions, covering the truth of actual government enablement. If they're thinking bombs, FAA, CIA, FBI pass on by that was a question from uh christo stefan i mean that's totally fair i mean if your gut's telling you that you don't think anything's weird about the way that those buildings fell that's i i, I think that's totally fine um i think it's not so much that these fantastic claims exist because frankly, I think that some of those fantastic claims are compelling. I think it's more the dogma that a lot of these 9-11 truthers would push on people and be like, you know, demanding that certain like activists uh, talk about the buildings being blown up with thermite by Stephen Jones and like shoving like a Stephen Jones paper or like a architects and engineers like, you know, documentary in their face and being like, why don't you talk about this? Like uh, that did more damage than the actual fantastical theories themselves is how dogmatic and aggressive and weird acting some of these truthers got. And frankly, I think some of it was, I mean, probably Cointelpro. I mean, just like any major activist movement, you know, but now on some level, there's probably a lot of mental illness in there in the mix too. And with Cointelpro, you don't necessarily have to plant informants. You can just like sort of steer someone who's mentally unstable Connie Moore asks, is this coincidence and what the FBI calls a strange coincidence, two apartments used by suspected hijackers named in the September 11th terrorist attacks were rented to them by a real estate agent married to the editor of the tabloid newspaper where an employee died from anthrax? Well, here's the thing, Connie. The FBI didn't think it was a coincidence at first. In fact, they were actually surprisingly putting eyes on Gloria Irish. They were like trying to put heat on them at first in the press, the FBI was. And then suddenly they're like, no, 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 no. 
Well, Connie, um, I don't know if you realize it or not, but your question, Horse Trotter's question, uh, is going to be a lot of what this podcast and basically the next three, including this one, Podcast and Media Roots, are going to be about. This weird coincidence of hijackers seemingly having relationship to the 2001 anthrax attacks. So when I'm done with these questions, I'm going to dive into that larger thesis that I'm going to be talking about today. Rania Kasim asks, what do you make of the financial anomalies on the stock market in the days leading up to 9-11? Data on which statistically show that it is very likely some people had foreknowledge of the attacks. But she posts to a screenshot here in the Journal of Business. There is no doubt, Rania, that um, statistically they're related. Now, here's the problem. Which of these insider traders were merely tipped off that it was going to be, that there was a good time to just put options on the airliner because they had some inside knowledge and say what it was, or how many of these people were actually involved in the 9-11 attacks, like in the loop? Because you would have to imagine that some of these crazy, insane, mass murderer, megalomaniac people who somehow were behind this also couldn't help themselves and tried to profit immensely off of it, maybe to a degree which was a little bit too extreme. Those people are in a different category than people who might have just heard whispers or been given a tip to put the option on. How do you distinguish those from the other? I don't know, but I do know that this story has been memory hold and, you know, Snopes, for example, um, acts like it's been debunked. But when you go like to Wikipedia, like you just did right here, for the category of insider trading on 9-11, it, it makes it sound totally plausible. So this is why websites like Snopes and things are obviously very biased in the sense that, you know, obviously they're being controlled or they're part of some like larger apparatus, but they're, they're always going to act like all of these things are sort of have been equally debunked. But this one has not been. Absolutely not. Name names of all that could have been involved, from PNAC to Bush admin, crossing the Rubicon. In this video, make it clear Dick Cheney orchestrated 9-11. Um, I, don't, I don't think, I don't agree with you. Um, I have read Crossing the Rubicon. Um, I've watched Norman Mineta's testimony. I don't think that that makes clear at all that Dick Cheney orchestrated 9-11. I think that he was likely involved. I just have a differing of opinion on what orchestrated means. That makes him sound like he's, he was the mastermind of it. I would actually subscribe more of the actual ideology behind it to some of the other people in the Bush administration. Now, I hesitate to just start naming, rattling off names of people that I think are suspects. If you talk about Rumsfeld, Bush, Cheney being involved in 9-11. There's no way someone could accuse you of weaving some kind of stealth anti-Semitic conspiracy. But then if you start widening it to the actual PNAC neocons, which I'll just say 
top suspect for me in PNAC, Wolfowitz. Other people, Libby. That's as far as I'll go for now. So I'll just say Wolfowitz seems to me like one of the top suspects in the Bush administration. Boomtube Ronan on Twitter says, what are some of the most, quote, entertaining theories that y'all have come across? I'd say one of the more entertaining theories that I've heard more recently that I've actually, like, thought about, you know, mused about before. Um, I don't know if I subscribe to this. It sounds ridiculous. But if you've looked at enough 9-11 stuff, it's, it starts to seem almost plausible in a way is this theory that the World Trade Center towers were originally designed to somehow be knocked down or to come down. That somehow 9-11 was being planned as far back as the early 70s. Now that sounds absolutely absurd, highly unlikely, but it's one of the more fun and entertaining theories that I've read about. So I guess that's going to wrap the question and answer session of this 9-11 podcast. So I'm just going to move on now to this to this topic of what happens when we look at the Israeli art students, the activities of the 9-11 hijackers and their associates, the 2001 anthrax attacks, and Bush's activities before and after 9-11, and Rudy Giuliani's activities before, after 9-11, after the anthrax attacks, during the anthrax attacks, in Florida and in New York, that were somehow connected together. What happens if we look at all these things from the perspective of that somehow all of these things are connected together, not just because they're reacting to these things, but that somehow maybe there is a thread that connects them all together. So why would we do that if we haven't even solved each individual one yet? Well, I think that this approach maybe seems a little bit like a leap, like a leap of faith. But I think we can make some educated guesses that the fact that there is so much overlap in geography and the timeline just with Florida alone, that it shows that there is some kind of connection. You can find a pattern throughout all of it in a strange way. And I'm go that's basically what this podcast is going to be about. I'm going to explain that to you in detail. Now, the same thing happens with New Jersey, but to a lesser extent where you find a connection overlapping Israeli art students, anthrax, 9-11 hijackers etc. So let me give you a refresher background about why Florida specifically is so much a part of the overall picture of 9-11. Well, for starters, almost all the hijackers, 14 out of 19 of them, spent a lot of time or most of their time before the 9-11 attacks in Florida, either taking flying lessons or just in general living out their lives there before the attacks. Now, one strange thing immediately pops out to me about this, re-looking at all this information, is the idea that these hijackers did most of their flight training in the same state, you know, kind of so quickly before 9-11, it seems like that alone is not very careful planning in the sense that that might draw an unnecessary amount of attention to your plan. Why did they do this in different states? Why did they wait till they got to the United States to take flying lessons, most of them? That's a little bit interesting in and of itself. 
So already you have out of the gates the 9-11 hijackers living out their lives, not really living in stealth that much at all, being very public, um, not even being very careful with their activities. In, in one instance, Muhammad Atta gets stopped for an expired driver's license and gets cited. In another instance, another hijacker gets stopped for speeding. But most of these hijackers had an interesting amount of time in Hollywood, Florida. Now, the reason why Hollywood, Florida becomes so interesting in and of itself is because they also come in very close contact with this group of so-called Israeli art students. Now, living in Florida, which includes hijackers and 9-11 suspects, some of whom came out on the FBI list that was released later on, Muhammad Atta, the supposed ringleader of 9-11, an Egyptian who allegedly was on American Airlines Flight 11. Marwan al-Shehi, who was Muhammad Atta's nephew, allegedly, is on Flight 175. He's from the UAE. And he was the parent pilot of Flight 175. Muhammad Atta was the alleged pilot of Flight 11. Khalid al-Midhar, also in Hollywood, Florida, was Saudi Arabian, and he was on American Airlines Flight 11. Zayed Jara from Lebanon was the alleged pilot of United Airlines Flight 93, and he also spent a lot of time in Hollywood, Florida. Abdul Aziz Al-Mari from Saudi Arabia was one of the alleged hijackers on Flight 11. Mohand Al-Sheri, Flight 175, the alleged pilot. Walid Al-Sheri, on Flight 11 from Saudi Arabia, lived in Hollywood, Florida. Wael Al-Shiri from Saudi Arabia was on Flight 11, lived in Florida. Satam Al-Sukami from Saudi Arabia was on Flight 11, also lived in Hollywood, Florida. Nawaf Al-Hazmi and Salem Al-Hazmi from Saudi Arabia were on Flight 77. Fayez Banahamad from United Arab Emirates, was on Flight 175, also lived in the Hollywood, Florida area, like Nawaf Al-Hazmi and Salem Al-Hazmi. Ahmed Al-Ghamdi and Hazma Al-Ghamdi from Saudi Arabia were on United Airlines Flight 175. They both lived in the Hollywood, Florida area. Saeed Al-Ghamdi from Saudi Arabia on United Airlines Flight 93 also lived in the Hollywood, Florida area. Ahmed Al-Hasnui from Saudi Arabia, Flight 93, also lived in the Hollywood, Florida area. Now, part of the reason I'm going through all this and trying to familiarize you with the names of the hijackers and what planes they were specifically supposed to be on, it's knowledge that you should try to memorize as best as you could so that when you're reading through 9-11 things and you're doing your own investigations or looking into specific things that you can. You can get as granular as possible while being able to follow all these threads without having to constantly have a reference up you know, of who was on which planes. 19 hijackers is a lot. They all have Muslim names. It's very hard for me personally to remember these names and to distinguish them from one another easily and to be able to remember which planes they're on. You know, a lot of truthers tend to just think that all this stuff is fake or that the hijackers weren't real or that they weren't on the planes. So they don't look into the granularity of the actual details to find anomalies within those. Now, 
DJ Thermal Detonator, who's uh, worked on a lot of interesting 9-11 research, specifically about the WTC-93 bombing, he pointed out to me when I posted the phone call uh, on the last 9-11 episode that we did, he said that what's strange to him about that call is that she says there's three guys and they've hijacked the plane. She doesn't describe any more than three people. What I've just told you, or... I don't know if I gave you all four of their names, but there were four hijackers on Flight 93. Saeed Al-Ghamdi from Saudi Arabia, Ahmed Al-Khwazni from Saudi Arabia, Zaid Jara from Lebanon, and Ahmed Al-Nami from Saudi Arabia. How is she not aware that four people hijacked the plane? Why was this situation so confusing to her that she only identified three people? And how do we know for sure that this fourth person was even on the plane? Well, I guess they must have been in the flight records. Everybody on that plane is dead. It's not like there's going to be a witness who'd be like, actually, no, he wasn't on that plane. Why is there a missing hijacker from her? Literally the only, okay, this is why this is important. I think this is why Thermal Detonator hit on something very important here. We're going mostly by secondhand accounts. Yeah, we can we can trust that some of those relatives captured messages. In fact, there's transcripts apparently of some more answering machine messages left by passengers. The secondhand accounts where it's like people relaying what they remember them being told by their relatives or whatnot on a real-time phone call, that's less reliable just because it's secondhand information. At least with firsthand transcripts, we can, if we, if we feel that they're trustworthy and actual recordings, that's as close as we're going to get to an eyewitness account on the plane. So what's fascinating is one of the only two first-hand accounts we have from the planes, one of them is from C.C. Lyles from Flight 93, says that only three people have hijacked the plane. So out of one of the only two eyewitness accounts, first-hand accounts we have of what happened on the planes, she, for some reason, only identifies three people. So I just want you to imagine a scene erupting on an airplane where hijackers you know, sitting, I guess, near each other on seats, decide to all strike at once and, and bum rush a cockpit and get in there. How do you not see the proper amount of people? How do you mistake three versus four? And also, addition to that, and if CeCe Lyle was just misstating that on the voicemail, seemingly no one corrected her standing around her. And you could clearly hear voices, male voices at an audible volume standing next to her. So that's already intriguing that when you get into the granularity of just which hijackers were on which planes, and I'm sorry, I'm sort of taking a tangent away from Florida for a second, but when you do this, you already find an anomaly, is that C.C. Lyles says three men hijacked the plane. Why is that? But strangely, again, it contradicts the official story on just a basic level. Why? So again, just to go over what I said to you earlier, 14 out of the 19 hijackers spent a lot of time in Florida. Specifically, many of them spent time in the Hollywood, Florida area or the city proper. What were they doing in Florida and specifically Hollywood, Florida? Well, keep that location in mind because we're going to jump around a little bit. But what were they doing in Florida? What were some of the things they were actually doing? Not like what were their motives, what were their intentions of being in Florida specifically, how to strategically help them. 
But what were they actually doing in Florida, for real? Well, one of the things they did in Florida that's very interesting is Muhammad Atta linked up with a flight school in Venice, Florida called Huffman Aviation, which is extremely, extremely sketchy. And if you want to look it up on the map, just go to the search box, type in Huffman Aviation. You'll see it's basically at this exact location of the of the Venice Municipal Airport. Now, both Mike Rupert and Daniel Hopsicker have written extensively about this bizarre flight school run by a guy named Rudy Decker who brags in all these stories that he basically marketed specifically his flight school internationally in order to train foreigners how to fly in the United States, which is a strange thing in and of itself. It seems kind of spook-like. It seems like some kind of cutout in and of itself to specifically market to foreigners. So apparently that's how he got the hijackers interested in his flight school. July of 2000, Atta and Marwan Alshihi showed up at Huffman Aviation in Venice, seeking flying lessons in exchange for $20,000 in cash Atta carried in a briefcase. Is this the plane they actually trained in? Yes, sir. This is the very plane right here. Well, they train in a few planes. Atta and Alshihi enrolled in an expedited flight program, flying nearly every day, according to Huffman Aviation owner Rudy Deckers. There was nothing that we could have seen that they were terrorists. I wish because then I would have stopped it. Now, basically, there were witnesses uh, who not just described Muhammad Atta and some of these hijackers going to Huffman Aviation to train at Huffman's flight schools, but that there was regular interactions between the two socially, that Muhammad Atta and Rudy Decker seemed as if they were friends or colleagues based on the interactions that they were having with each other by witnesses. Now, one time the police... And the FBI were looking into Rudy Deckers for possibly being involved in some kind of money laundering scheme with the hijackers. If there's any potential organized crime connections we have here with domestic, you know, American actors who have bizarre connections to government and drug trafficking, it's Huffman Aviation. Rudy Deckers, the former owner of Huffman Aviation, went bankrupt. I lived the American dream and... Six months after, I was nothing anymore. He wrote a book in 2011 that didn't sell many copies. The next year, he was convicted of distributing cocaine and heroin, served time in federal prison, and according to his ex-wife, moved out of the country. Now, originally, Daniel Hopsicker thought that Rudy Deckers was the proper owner of Huffman Aviation, although I think he probably suspected that he was like a front for someone else. Now, eventually, he discovers that a 70-year-old man named Wallace J. Hillard of Naples, who is allegedly a Mormon bishop. Now, Daniel Hopsicker interviewed some other people at the Venice airport on the ground. Still to this day, one of the only journalists to actually go in there with a challenging perspective. He got some of these people to straight up say that it seemed as if Rudy Decker was a front man for someone with the money. So apparently this is the guy. Also just picked up my copy of Welcome to Terrorland again by Daniel Hopsicker. And he points out that William J. Hillard, the funder of Huffman Aviation, also co-owns jets with a former CIA U-2 pilot over Russia named Mark Shubin. Daniel Hopsicker also claims that Rudy Deckers was caught but never charged with smuggling high-technology components out of the U.S. by a multi-agency investigation in the mid-'90s. So if you think it's just a coincidence that Walter J. Hillard 
bought planes with a former CIA spy pilot and that his frontman, who runs Huffman Aviation, was investigated for trying to smuggle out technology. If you just think that's a coincidence, well, Walter J. Hillard, the secret bankroller of Huffman Aviation, this Mormon bishop, actually got embroiled in a drug trafficking seizure that happened at the Orlando airport. 30 pounds of heroin were seized on one of Walter J. Hillard's planes. And apparently it was being used at the time by a Venezuelan national who had rented it from Hillard. So he didn't get arrested for this, but I'm sure that he was suspected at certain points in this. Now, this was not just a random seizure of heroin. This was apparently the largest heroin seizure in Florida's history on Hillard's Learjet. The FBI was already looking into Decker to see who was backing him. Now, this is where it gets really, really weird, is that it actually connects to the Bush family. Governor Jeb Bush and Catherine Harris, the Florida Secretary of State, who was basically responsible for ending the recount in Florida for Bush, her and Jeb Bush go out of their way multiple times to give an endorsement to their boutique, brand new chartered airline company called Plane One. The company also got called Florida Air. Now it gets just weirder and weirder because this airline totally flopped other than being involved in like a drug trafficking arrest, which, by the way, this was a plane that he owned. I don't believe that Wally Hillard, this Mormon bishop, was ever actually charged. But what's the strangest thing in the world is that Jeb Bush and Catherine Harris tried as hard as they could to erase any connection they had with Florida Air, Rudy Decker, Huffman Aviation, Plane One, Wally Hillard. And their endorsements for it were strange too, because it wasn't like this was actually a service that was doing well or was promising or seemingly connected in any way to like any, anything. It's very mysterious and murky and sketchy. So to have them promoting it almost seems like they're doing them some kind of favor or something. Yet this company flopped and they endorse it after the drug trafficking plane scandal. Now, two guys we've had on Media Roots Radio fairly recently, Mike and Eric Jackman, they actually confronted Jeb Bush when he was on the campaign trail about something strange that was reported that he apparently did after 9-11. Apparently the day after 9-11, files were loaded onto two Ryder trucks and then driven onto a C-130 cargo plane, which left Sarasota the day after 9-11. And a local sheriff in Sarasota, I guess who was investigating Huffman Aviation, said that the FBI just came in, took the files literally the day after 9-11, and took hundreds of files. They took pretty much anything related to any Saudi nationals, any foreign nationals, basically took all these files and never gave them access to them, never gave local law enforcement access. Well, maybe that alone doesn't sound that strange. But the reason why Mike and Eric Jackman confronted Jeb Bush specifically about this is because this local sheriff in Sarasota reports to Daniel Hopsicker and others that he's actually witnessing Jeb Bush on the plane with the FBI on the C-130 cargo plane leaving Florida the day after 9-11 to go somewhere. So that's interesting that Jeb Bush was actually somehow directly linked up with the FBI during that interchange. Now, 
Jeb Bush was connected to Huffman Aviation. He, as I said, helped promote this other airline that the company tried to launch that was, that was a failure. Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shihi also rented a room from a company employee of Huffman Aviation named Charlie Voss. Him and his wife, Drew, actually would rent their rooms to different foreign nationals who would come there all the time. So it wasn't unusual for them to rent their room to Muhammad Atta. But they claimed then that Muhammad Atta and his roommate just like trashed the room and flooded the bathroom so that they got evicted like really soon. Again, not the type of behavior from a group of people who's trying to lie low. Now, this is just maybe an odd coincidence, but a couple of the flight schools involved, well, as I already told you, Rudy Decker, when he eventually gets arrested for fraud, he crashes his helicopter just a couple of days after it's announced that he's being charged with this felony fraud charge. Ten minutes after he takes off in a helicopter, his helicopter engine cuts off and it crashes into a river. And this was actually him on the way to arrange the sale of Huffman Aviation. Very strange. And apparently he survived the crash fine and proceeded with the sale later in the day. Now, another one of these Florida flight schools, which was attended by Zayed Jara, the Florida Flight Training Center, the owner of this Florida Flight Training Center, Arn Kruithoff, who happens to be someone who Daniel Hopsicker refers to as one of the magic Dutch boys, along with Rudy Decker, he too wrote a book trying to profess his innocence that didn't sell very well. Rudy Decker and him, Kruithoff, both have books. But the difference between him and Rudy Decker is that Kruithoff himself, who owned this other flight school, was actually investigated by the FBI for potentially having connections to Zacharias Mosawi, the so-called 20th hijacker. So already we have two flight schools that the hijackers attended with strange connections. And Aaron Kruithoff actually has an interesting incident similar to Rudy Decker. Kruithoff, a year after 9-11, is a passenger in one of his own planes. And there's several other passengers on board as well. And suddenly... Right as they take off, about 50 feet off the runway, somehow the pilot completely loses control of the wheel of the plane, and the plane just starts to veer completely to the left on its own. Apparently, no one is injured in this crash, but the plane is absolutely destroyed. He comes out completely unscathed from a plane crash that totals one of his expensive planes. Could these have been incidences for some kind of insurance fraud, or was there some purpose to doing this? It's very strange. Now, Kemper Aviation, which is a flight school completely on the other side of Florida, on the opposite coast, in Latana, Florida, which is actually awfully close to where Robert Stevens lives, or lived, rather, is another mysterious flight school. It has a very strange connection to someone who is suspected CIA, who appears to be a protected foreign terrorist who was accused of murder and a bombing in Belgium, and who was hiding out in the United States in the late 90s, and who for some reason was finally arrested right before 9-11. But then he continues to operate in Florida as this sort of free man. This man's name was Jean-Francois 
Buslik. And there's all this really interesting stuff written about him. There's an incredible, very long seven-page story about this guy on the on the Broward Palm Beach New Times website by a guy named Jay Cheshis called Secrets and Crimes. And it was actually written before 9-11, so this guy was already in the news in local Florida news as being this like really sus, potentially CIA character, which frankly is not too uncommon in Florida. Florida is sort of a spook haven. I mean, you got to imagine that some of the first really extreme CIA activity where it was like CIA regime change, a lot of that was directed at Cuba. Some of the earliest stuff in terms of like, you know, waging full proxy wars, like mafia crossover with intelligence, drug trafficking. Uh, a lot of that stuff revolved around Florida, frankly. And this guy, Jean-Francois Buslik, was also accused of drug trafficking. And he has seemingly a lot of assets in Florida. He owns a boat. So it's very fascinating. It's, I mean, it's hard to really pull this apart, but it does seem like some of these flight schools were somehow in on the attacks and that they had connections to various networks, criminal underground, potential intelligence, private intelligence, cutouts for other types of secret operations. It's very, very strange. So you basically have two flight schools with CIA connections that are pretty direct, Huffman Aviation and Kemper, and then you have sort of these mysterious crashes that happen at the other flight schools, including the Florida Flight Training Center. And then you actually have the flight school employees helping with the lodging of Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shihi. Now, if you go to the interactive map and you go to the search box and type in Jean-Francois, well, don't type in the full name, just type in Jean, J-E-A-N, and you'll see two addresses pop up. So you see one that's registered near Vero Beach. Now I want you to go to the Lagoon Drive address that pops up there. You can just already see that there is some proximity to some of the hijackers. Not a whole lot. You know, within five miles we have a 9-11 suspect. And within about 10 miles we have a cluster of 9-11 hijackers. But what other weird behaviors did the hijackers do to sort of draw attention to themselves? Well, a lot of different things. They stiffed a bill at a restaurant. They would brag about being airline pilots. They were rude. They were cagey acting. They drew so much attention to themselves that it almost seems partly by design. And I know that sounds strange or really tinfoil hat-ish, but let me just explain to you what I mean. According to ABC Action News, Mohammed Atta and two other guys went down to Sarasota and decided to record an album. They had a whole album planned called The Arab Assassins. Here are some of the lyrics from that song. We could die any day. That's why we pray for such purposes. Five times a day. Heads at concrete surfaces. It's murderous. Arab assassins. You've heard of us. Uh, that is apparently a rap song that was sung by Muhammad Atta in a Sarasota recording studio. 
at the GHC Recording Studios, according to the Sarasota Herald Tribune, this is from History Commons, their lyrics, quote, range from generic references to Palestinian beliefs to verses that could be considered by some as a warning of what unfolded in New York City on 9-11. These refer to subjects such as bombings, New York, and fundamentalist Islamic martyrs. Lyrics include, I know I'm going to die. I'm next on God's list. Partners torn, transformed to martyrs, to turn wives into widows. And, quote, the U.S. will remember this. After 9-11, the recording studio's owner, Chris Musgrave, will comment, There's some weird coincidences here. The rap group is made up of the three brothers who claim to be from Brooklyn. Yet officials with the Recording Industry Association of America later say they have never heard of the Arab assassins and none of the large internet music sites offer any recordings by them. After recording several songs at the studio, the Arab assassins take six copies of their CD and then leave a telephone number that is listed as disconnected. The day after 9-11, the local FBI will seize a copy of the CD from the studio but offer no comments to the press on the band. From an article that's now been taken down from the Florida Herald Tribune, the headline is, FBI confiscates CD recorded in Sarasota by band called Arab Assassins. The FBI visited a Sarasota recording studio early Wednesday to seize a copy of a CD containing songs by the Arab Assassins, a mysterious band who sang of upcoming terrorist acts that the world will remember. The rap band paid cash, $500 a week, plus producing fees, last month to record songs about terrorism and dying soon for Allah. The hip-hop lyrics range from generic references to Palestinian beliefs to verses that could be considered as some as a warning. Lyrics include, Let me roast with them, and guerrilla warfare? I say it's strictly honest. The music also refers to bombings. Details about the band whose members told Musgrave they were from Brooklyn are sketchy. Musgrave told the FBI that the group was made up of three brothers. Those in the entourage went by nicknames including Lefty, which is what everyone called the lead singer. The FBI office in Tampa had no comment on the band or why it was interested in their CD on Wednesday afternoon. But that first story that I read to you about this supposed CD, what's interesting is on the other stories I just read you about this mysterious CD recorded at this recording studio in Sarasota, there's nothing that says that these Arab men was Muhammad Atta. But this story says that Atta and other hijackers recorded these songs. Even if this is a mistake, if this isn't Muhammad Atta and they're misreporting this in the new story, because this story I'm reading to you, reading you that from was written September 9th, 2021 by a reporter named Adam Walzar. And apparently this ABC News report might actually be wrong. Spin Magazine is the only outlet I could find that actually did a follow-up report on the story and found somebody named Jawad Lefty Sala, who is a Palestinian-American rapper who lives in Brooklyn, that when he woke up on 9-11, when he realized what was going on, that he knew that somehow he was going to be blamed or that Palestinians were going to be blamed, which is odd prescience because Palestinians were blamed for 9-11 before bin Laden was blamed. Now here's what's weird too is in the Spin Magazine article it says the Arab Assassin's three-song demo was confiscated 
from GHC Recording Studios in Sarasota, Florida. And the FBI investigated the group, in quotes, Salah's the only assassin in connection with the World Trade Center Pentagon attacks. His manager received a voice message from the FBI. I don't know. It's awfully odd to me that all the early reports of this say that three people were there and that the ABC News reports would have said that it was Muhammad Atta and two of the other hijackers. Why is that? Is that a mistake? And there's no explanation in this article at all of why Jawood lefty Salah, this rapper, went all the way to Sarasota, Florida, right next to where the hijackers were located to record this. It's strange. Now, I want to show you what I mean on my map. Check out where GHC recording is. Type in GHC in the search box and you will see the address pop up. It is 2195 Porter Lake Drive, Sarasota, Florida. Now, what you see come up next to it is an address 4224 Escondido Circle. And basically, this was a house that belonged to some rich Saudis that several of the hijackers, including Muhammad Atta, would come to regularly. It's about five miles away. It's not too far away. Muhammad Atta also listed an address at 516 Laurel Road in Nokomis, Florida. That's about 11 miles away from the recording studio. Then you also have the flight school in Sarasota where the hijackers trained, which is about eight miles away from this recording studio called Jones Aviation. And then you have a little hangout spot that Muhammad Atta liked to go to called Longboat Key, the Holiday Inn on Longboat Key, which is about 14 miles away. So, yeah, I mean, that's not really super compelling, the distances between them, but if you kind of look at where the recording studio is located and you zoom out, you can sort of see how there is a cluster in Venice sort of around the recording studio. So it, again, it's just an odd coincidence that a random Palestinian rapper would have recorded something like this at a recording studio and that all the early reports would have confused him with Muhammad Atta. As a Palestinian, just looking at a picture of this rapper in the Spin Magazine article, he does not look dark-skinned Arab like Muhammad Atta looked, like an Egyptian. So when I plug in his name, Arab Assassins, uh, what comes up on Discogs, one of the most comprehensive, I mean, you could find pretty much everything on this website, on Discogs. What comes up for Arab Assassins on Discogs? Literally one release. What release is that, might you ask? Well, it's actually a bootleg, a bootleg of Coil Rarities, a double CD that I guess because it has a song called NASA Arab and Assassins of Hakim Bay, two different songs on it, it's the only thing that shows up when you type in the band name Arab Assassins. You know, there's got to be something about this band, right? I mean, if it's in Spin Magazine, okay, let's type it in all music. Nothing pops up. There's no such artist Maybe they never released anything under the name Arab Assassins, right? Maybe it was just a demo CD, as some of those stories said. It's a three-track demo, right? Okay, well, maybe it never got released. Well, what about the rapper's name? He's got to have something, some credit on something, right? Jawad Salah. Jawad Lefty Salah. So what happens when you type his name into any of these music database places? 
a series of Arab CDs that looks like it comes up when you search for his name. None of them have anything to do with him. They're all like generic Middle Eastern music. One of them is like a generic Middle Eastern alternative rock album from Egypt. But why doesn't this rapper have any presence whatsoever? Especially, why didn't he like capitalize on this fame from the 9-11 attacks? He was like living in Miami. I mean, you would think that if he was cleared, if his name was cleared by this, you would think he would have, you know, come out there and been like, holy shit, like he got this spin coverage. But it does have an odd, I don't know how to say it, Israeli art student vibe to it. It's unusual to come across a musician who has zero musical footprint. This CD, it doesn't sound like it was from recorded by Muhammad Atta and the 9-11 hijackers. I mean, you heard it at the beginning of the podcast. It sounds like like English is a native language for whoever's rapping this stuff. And it sounds performative. like It's like sort of Hasbro-ish, like something that like, you know, almost like a, a very extremist, like he's even saying it. it's like agitprop. He randomly appears in an MTV interview where they're interviewing Iraq war protesters and they interview him in 2003. He actually does have a website. It's Gaza-NY.com. Gaza-NY, Why I Cry, he has a song. And, I mean, it seems more legit now that I'm looking at it, but it's just such a weird... And this guy never made anything nearly as, like, controversial since. I mean, the fact that he would somehow be able to erase all, every variation of a digital footprint possible for this Arab assassins thing is really fascinating. I guess now he's going by the name Arab Gorillas. Let's see what his Twitter account says. And yeah, I mean, at the same time, like, if this guy is, like, an actual Palestinian activist, and it's just, like, a terrible coincidence... No shade intended on him, but man, what a weird story. And the fact that it's still in the news on ABC News, them saying it's Muhammad Atta. There's some really weird, very wrong reporting out there then. And this guy is not seemingly interested in correcting any of it because plenty of reporting out there that still claims that these songs were recorded by Muhammad Atta. I'm scrolling back to his Facebook page. This is the only reference I can find that Gaza NY, which appears to be his new pseudonym, says about what happened back in 2001. He says, in 2001, post 9-11, the FBI confiscated Gaza NY's music, claiming it can cause an uprising in Arab Americans. Authorities went on a manhunt to find out who this artist was. News channels were playing his music and falsifying the lyrics on the screen. In 2003, he released mixtape, Trapped in Two Worlds, which was a compilation of these songs. He was told to take it off the market. Now in 2011, he is re-releasing it to his loyal fans for free, regardless of the allegations in the past. I've, I mean, he hasn't re-released it under the same name. I mean, so if he has, it's not anywhere up on his Facebook page. So I know it seems like I spent a lot of time misdirecting you there, but... This is what happens when you go down some of these 9-11 rabbit holes of unexplored little avenues. There are still some really bizarre things from that. Why do all the stories say that three people came and recorded that album? Why does Lefty Salah say in the Spin Magazine interview that it was only him that went to record this album? And why did he go down to Sarasota 
Reitner where all the hijackers were at various points and record this. Could it be a total coincidence? Could it be totally unrelated? Maybe. But there's still an ABC News affiliate running stories now in 2021 saying that this is the work of Muhammad Atta. Very strange. Very, very strange. But I promise you on part two of this episode, as you follow along using the interactive map that we will provide you as Patreon subscribers, we'll have some pretty, in my opinion, incredible revelations about the proximity of Bush to some of these suspected Saudi financiers of the 9-11 attacks, to some bizarre proximity between 9-11 hijackers and Israeli art students and their locations. Even more creepy, strange coincidental proximity between individuals related to the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 hijackers. So check that episode out next. It's called Boca Raton, Sarasota, Art Students, Anthrax, and Angel is Next. And please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber to Media Roots Radio at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Thanks for listening. <laughs>